Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome. Like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome. Like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. I'm your host, Brian C. Adams. Tune in weekly to hear from top industry leaders as we discuss relevant topics in the world of business, investing, health and wellness, geopolitics, and more. To learn more about the show, visit excelsiorgp.com slash podcast. Hello and welcome to the Capital Club Podcast. Today with me, Maggie Clockengay. Maggie is a certified financial planner, CPA, AFC, and the founder of Make a Money Mindshift a financial coaching firm in central Illinois. Maggie has been in the financial services industry for over 25 years, and she teaches that once you discover your why, you can adjust your mindset and change your hows to achieve your what's. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us today. Yeah, I'm happy to be here, Brian. So I have been following you on social media and the website, and one of the reasons I reached out is there is this kind of burgeoning space of understanding people's relationship with money, what motivates them, how to have a healthy relationship with it. And it really is, we work with ultra high net worth individuals and families, but it, it's really not even a function of the zeros. We all have some relationship with it. It could be healthy, it could be unhealthy, it could be in flux. So I'm curious, like, what got you curious yourself about the space and how did you land in this current position that you're in today? Yeah, that's such a great question. For me, it was when I was working at my, the last investment advisory firm, we had clients that were close to retirement or they were retired and their adult children were coming to us and just saying, Hey, you know what? We've got all the things happening. We've got mortgages and daycare and all these expenses. And what can we do to, you know, just make sure that everything we're doing everything right? And we would give them a financial plan. And that was about it. And then we'd say, go ahead, you know, execute this and we'll see you in a few years. And I just thought, how can we help them? And so I started then looking just within my own community and ways that I could do some outreach. And Love him or hate him, Dave Ramsey has Financial Peace University. 
And I never participated in it, but I thought, well, let me go ahead and learn it. I'll teach it. I'll learn it as I go. And Brian, the very first class, people were coming in from my church and saying, Maggie, so glad to see you. This is my second time attending, or this is my third time attending. And I thought, wow, like, obviously very happy that they're there. Thank you for coming. But behind, you know, in my mind, I'm just thinking, wow, what did not resonate? What did not hit that they didn't make those changes? You know, that they're coming back to the class almost like it's a social event. And so then I really started looking into financial psychology and just researching it and finding Dr. Brad Klontz and Rick Kaler. Carl Richards has written some books. And I just thought, oh, this is why people do the things they do with their money. And from there, then I started doing some pro bono coaching just with some friends who, a few different couples, and just sharing with them what I learned. And the response was Maggie in the 15, 20 years we've been married. We've never been able to talk to each other about money this way and not get into a fight. And I thought, okay, there's definitely something here. So from there, that's, it was really, you know, the catalyst I think was just that class and people just saying, you know, they're just on the hamster wheel and they just keep going. And there wasn't really a question as to how to get off. It's just, it is what it is. Yeah. You referenced Dave Ramsey. He's obviously in my backyard here in Nashville and is a really influential person, but also can be a bit divisive and not everyone kind of agrees, but with his sentiment on kind of the no debt world. But regardless of you agreeing or disagreeing with him, his show and his following is a testament to this appetite for financial literacy, financial psychology. Why do you think it is within American culture still to this day that money is just something we don't talk about, we don't feel comfortable talking about, even within our own, like around the kitchen table with people that are intimate with that's such a great question. I think it really stems from our childhood. So depending on how money was talked with us or not talked with us growing up, that kind of leads us to then copy those same mannerisms, maybe without our even realizing it. So subconsciously, we may be doing that. And that's one of the things I learned just in my researching was money scripts. So money scripts are beliefs about money that we learned from our loved ones typically in our childhood. And those messages about money were repeated by our loved ones to us again and again, creating this neural pathway in our brains. So then when we're now in our own adulthood, we may be thinking these same money scripts, not even realizing it. And so, but I, I definitely think it, it starts in our childhood because we learn, oh, we don't talk about money. You know, if we've been shushed before or that's not appropriate, you don't ask how much someone is making or, you know, why is that person driving that car? We, you know, well, that's they're just trying to keep up with the Joneses. And so we take that in as children and then think, okay, this is really how it goes. It's so uncomfortable for our brains to make change. Like our brains want us to stay safe. So we're just going to keep on keeping on until something almost thrusts us into a new experience. Yeah, I money was not something we talked about growing up in my household. Still isn't to this day. I have no idea how much my parents have. And I'm the executor of their yeah. estate. I have no clue. It's just not something we talk about. And even 
in my therapy sessions, when my therapist will ask me about money, et cetera, it took me like months to get comfortable telling them how much I make or how much I have. And this is like, why would that matter, right? right. This is a discreet person who's confidential, who doesn't really care about it. But I just felt like physically ill almost or uncomfortable saying it out loud. And now that my kids are 10 and 7, my 10-year-old is just intellectually curious about well, how much does our house cost and like how do mortgages work and how much is my school that I go to. And it's been eye-opening for me just how the level of discomfort I have discussing it openly. <laughs> it's, and I think it does. It stems from childhood and, and what you learned and what you saw yourself growing up. So how do you I guess, how do you coach people through that or how do you help them manage through that so that they don't find themselves in a shame cycle or where they don't talk about it and then they get into big trouble? Yeah. And so to your point, when talking, so my boys right now are 10, 9, and 8. And again, the intellectually curious, you know, the way that we phrase it is, you know, there's certain information that we can, and I'll coach this to my clients too, there's certain information that children can understand to a point, but then there's some information that it's our information for our family for as a unit to know, but that doesn't necessarily mean we need to share it with others. Sometimes it may be that other children may feel badly themselves if they hear something. And we certainly don't want to make them feel badly from something that we said, you know, about money. So, but it is hard because you want to share with your kids and you want to be transparent, but to a point where they don't still go off, spout off everything to their friends. One of the things that I'd use when I'm working with my clients is the client's money script inventory assessment, AMSI. And that is something that has been really great as far as being a conversation piece, because it goes through these money scripts that I've alluded to, and you know, there's probably 50 or 60 listed, and you go anywhere from strongly disagree to strongly agree. And... I really love doing it with couples because sometimes it may be a specific word in the statement and the couple, the partners disagree, like very strongly disagree with each other. Like one strongly agrees, one strongly disagrees. And it just generates more conversation. Like maybe the word is rich. What does rich mean to you? And, you know, I went like with one couple I'm thinking of, there were specific words that were triggers for them. But when they then talked about it, it was they still share the same the same values. So when I'm working with clients using the client's money script inventory assessment, and to your question of how do I work with you know to kind of help them get through that discomfort of maybe the discomfort or anxiety that they feel about money around money, it's I use something called a money script thought ladder. I borrow the concept from Brooke Castillo. And basically, instead of us flipping a script, which is very hard for us to do or why we typically fail, like say on a diet, like you don't go cold turkey. It's just little iterations of thoughts that we can have about money that get us to maybe a point of discomfort to then getting to a point of more comfort and, you know, just understanding it more. So like, for example, one of the statements in the money in the KMSI is things would get better if I had more money. Lots of my clients strongly agree with that. And so then we'll talk about, okay, like what's the first rung that we can do? Well, maybe the first rung is just, I have money. 
doesn't matter like what you're talking about with the clients who you work with high net worth, maybe 20 million. I'm working with a client right now, 20 million. I'm also working with a client who has about 5,000. But regardless, they have money. So that is a statement of fact that, you know, then maybe the next one is money is a tool that I can use to improve my life. So going from, it's not just, it's money is not the end all be all. It is a tool that can help. And then maybe another run is there are ways, you know, that I can improve my life without relying on money. Again, try to re- move away from it and then maybe going to, I can enjoy my life without having relying on money. And so going from these different iterations to get more to a more comfortable level. So then when you are talking with others, whether it's your kids or with your friends, you know, whether it's saying, hey, I'm working with my, with, you know, with my financial coach right now to just try to understand my numbers and then saying, I'm uncomfortable talking about this right now. Can we talk about this, you know, another time soon? You know, it's just broaching the subject. What I share with my clients all the time is if you're thinking it, they are almost, I could almost assure you they are thinking it too. They just don't want to say anything. Yeah. I mean, there are, I think a lot of us who just, it dominates our thoughts every day. And, you know, we wake up in the morning is one of the first things we think about and it controls our behaviors, but we're not able to verbalize it. And I know from my own personal experience, speaking it into the world with somebody can be really helpful to allay your anxiety or to think about your relationship with it in terms of being able to put the concept of money on a table and have an arm's length conversation about it as opposed to just ruminating on it all day, every day and and feeling helpless, you know, in order to, there's no levers to pull for many people. So what's the end game for you with the coaching? What do you think is a good result when you work with somebody that does have anxiety about money issues? First, I always tell my clients, I want to empower them. I don't want to enable them. So I work with them on a short-term basis on purpose. It's really so that they are aware of, first of all, their behaviors. Uh, when I'm working with my clients, we don't even, usually it's around eight sessions and we don't even get into their numbers until typically around session five. And that's on purpose because I'm looking for them to be open to behavior change. Just again, I, I do a lot of analogies with food because food is something that people can talk about. Diets are something that people can talk about. Lifestyle change with food, yes. Money lifestyle, that is really hard still to talk about. And so it's really just getting them to make those pauses and then asking that just why? Why do I want to make this purchase? And because it's stopping our brains from doing the thing that they, we've always done. And asking ourselves why having that behavior change and then they are making with intention purchases that are serving their future selves or their present selves because that's really what is so hard especially coming out of the pandemic there's been so many people who changed their behavior they had to because of the pandemic and they changed some of their spending because of the pandemic but they haven't gone back why because there hasn't been any reason. When I've had more people reaching out to me lately because of inflation, 
And just because there might have been one one trigger financially that they were doing fine. And then there's now it's like, okay, but between inflation and then this one event, we're just we're struggling and we're trying to figure out why. Or they just were looking to try and say, okay, how can I move away from this anxiety? For me, the end game is that they're making those pauses, that they're living with intention with their money choices so that they know that it is aligned with what they truly value. And and that's really it for me. I'd had the I had a wonderful client who worked on down, downsizing her home. And it was something that she thought may be kind of hindering her finances and recognized that while she loved the home, there were more problems and repairs and renovations that were coming from it. And six months after we were done working together, she reached out to me and she said, I did it. I downsized and I feel so much better because now we're living in a space that is working for us. And I think, you know, we just get into life and we just keep moving forward and we don't take that stop and pause and kind of stand to the side and observe ourselves to say, why am I doing this? Do I want to keep doing this? Great. But, but maybe take that pause and ask ourselves why. So it's really the end game is changing their spending behavior their and that helps them, you know, their feelings about money. You referenced a couple things that I want to revisit. One, generally people are struggling. Two, this concept that we are not our thoughts, so we are not necessarily our emotions, just because we have certain iterative, recursive thoughts about money or around money doesn't mean that is the truth. Right. Like we can change. If we change our thoughts, if we can change our emotions around money, we can change our relationship about money. It's not set in That's stone. Right. How often do you find that people's anxieties, fears, emotions around money are really just a projection of deeper issues that they're having psychologically or emotionally? So I'm not a financial therapist. I, When I talk with others, I will share with them, like with prospects, that I work with financial therapists and I have shown them my sessions. If I, sometimes I can, when I'm just speaking with a prospect from the get-go, there might be something that's underlined that I, that the money is a symptom, right? And that's when I will say, I, I absolutely refer out from the get-go or if I start working with somebody and I, I feel like there is a wall that they are keeping themselves behind for whatever reason. And so I'm not able to connect with them. That doesn't happen that often. I think it's because financial therapy is, I think, becoming more, not front and center, but people are becoming more aware of it and going, oh, okay, this is a thing. I can actually talk with someone about this. But I do, that being said, my very first session is talking with my clients about the emotions and money and sharing with them, look, I've gone over this with financial therapists because it is something where like, how do you feel when I say the word money? How do you feel in your body? You know, and just that question, all of a sudden people, you can see them. We do our sessions through Zoom and you can see Brian, like they're just like, all of a sudden they're like, oh, I'm already feeling it because you just asked me. You know, I can see the tension in their shoulders that you talk to me about. There's the stomach aches that they have. And 
So it's really eye-opening to them from the beginning, just how their thoughts about money that, like you said, like can be happening throughout the day. We talk about ways to kind of reduce those highly emotional charges so that they can get back to a centering point where they feel more neutral. But it's, it, it is definitely something that I think when you're given some tools and techniques, it does help you feel more in control. Because I think with money, we can feel so out of control if we have the W-2 job where we're making a certain amount or we feel like every time we turn around, you know, the, there's another expense that we weren't planning on. And so it, it can become just this island of emotions and we may act out in different ways. Sometimes it's overspending, sometimes it's overeating, sometimes it's over. Yeah, I know my myself, I often will try different ways to like numb that emotion so that I just remove yeah. it and try to, and I've had what my therapist would call maladaptive uh, efforts in the past, right? Things are not healthy, right. productive ways to deal with it. And right, I'm trying to build my toolkit so that I have better options at my disposal when those thoughts come to mind. But what are some of the techniques that you teach and coach just yeah. generally yeah. to help people work through it? Yeah. So one of the things is literally I do, I go over a couple of different deep breathing techniques. The reason why is because, and I'll, and I'll do the deep breaths with my clients during the session because it's something that it's always with us. It's free. And yet we take it for granted all the time. It's what I liken it to when we have a cold. We're so glad when our cold is over because we can breathe again. But you don't think about it otherwise. So why don't we take that deep breath and, you know, calm down our parasympathetic nervous system? I don't know. We just don't. Another one is the five, four, three, two, one technique. And it's taking in our different senses and looking around the room, looking around the area where we are to kind of help remove the, just bring us back to where we are physically and ground us. So those are just a, a couple of ways. Exceptional family offices, family enterprises, wealth management, and financial services organizations require superior leadership to successfully thrive in today's competitive environment. Building a team of talented leaders is a complex challenge that is best accomplished in partnership with a firm that offers a proven track record of success, which is why I'd like to introduce you to our new sponsor, Mac International. Mac International is recognized as the premier boutique firm that specializes in providing retained executive search and strategic human capital consulting solutions to single and multi-client family offices, family enterprises, and the full spectrum of wealth management advisory, investment management, and financial services firms that serve ultra-high net private investors and family offices on a national and international basis. If you're interested in learning more about Mac International, visit their website at macinternational.com. I'm curious what, besides kind of the generalized concepts that we've gone over and some of the, I'm sure, just anxiety and, you know, iterative thoughts, but what are some other unique things about what people are struggling with today? You referenced inflation. There seems to be a general, I don't know, uncertainty about geopolitics, domestic politics, financial markets. Is there anything else that's been just interesting to you that 
more and more people are coming to you that need help with recently? One thing is the fact that the federal student loan repayments have started again. So that has been, you know, you had COVID, you had the pandemic. A lot of people were looking for connection. Connection is a value that we have, you know, Maslow's hierarchy of needs. You're still looking for that connection, whether it's with financial costs or without it. People were connecting. They used to connect in restaurants and then they went to takeout and then they just never stopped doing the takeout. So that was one thing that I was seeing a lot prior to then federal student loan repayments and the federal student loan repayments. It's like, it's kind of like when you have a car loan that you paid off and you're not saving for the next car, but really maybe you should be saving for the next car because it's going to come. You're going to have another payment. The federal student loan repayments people kind of forgot that they had them. So I would talk to people and they they would maybe, sometimes they'd bring it up. Oh, I do have some federal student loans. Or they wouldn't even ask, they wouldn't even bring it up until we were like talking about their numbers. And I would say, okay, we're going through each, you know, what you own and what you owe. It was just like, this was something so far off in the distance. And yet now here it is. And so that has been, that's also been that, along with inflation has been a trigger. There's a lot of people who want to buy houses right now and are decimated because the interest rates are so high that they feel like they can't get there. And so they're wanting to know, can I afford to do this? Is this something that I should even be thinking about? They might come with those questions as well. But yeah, it's the interest rate environment as it is for Buying a house is very difficult. And then, of course, then if people do have consumer debt, whether it's credit card debt or auto loan debt, I've seen so many credit cards at 30% interest rates. And it's just, it's heartbreaking. That's wild. Yeah, I was trying to teach my children. I get the Wall Street Journal delivered to my house every day, like the paper. And I read it in the morning with my older son. He likes to read it with me. And it is challenging to explain to him that like our mortgage at under 3% is quote unquote good debt. Whereas your credit card, like you referenced, I said this today in today's markets, right? North of 25, sometimes 30%. That's not okay. (laughs) But in his mind, there's really no, it's very hard to differentiate, right? Numbers on the page. And why is it, do you think, in America, there just is no basic financial literacy taught in school or otherwise. Uh, Yes. I mean, I feel it's changing. The landscape is changing state by state, thank goodness. And there's organizations that that obviously are for it. I'm a junior achievement volunteer. I love teaching the third grade classes. Hi, Mrs. Clockengay. I don't know. And interestingly enough, what I teach the third graders, Brian, is what I teach my adult clients. The same thing. Pay yourself first. Like it's just some of those concepts are the exact same. I don't know why it's not. And I feel like, and it could be, again, similar to like, you just keep doing the same things that you've done in the past because it's worked into a point. Maybe now with this high inflationary environment, maybe with saying, okay, Things do need to change because families are struggling. This will be the precipice for then more states to say, okay, we do need to implement, you know, imperative financial literacy class before graduation. That would be to me ideal. I don't know. I'm not sure 
I think along the lines where home economics dropped off and then other classes, technology staying up, you know, came in. My kids are learning typing right now. I don't know about your kids. I'm impressed. Like, I'm like, okay, you can type. That's great. But, you know, still the financial literacy comes in from a nonprofit organization. I don't know why that is. I want to maybe ask a, a more challenging question. Are you seeing across the arc of your career less or more confidence amongst your clients and maybe yourself in the what I would call like the Wall Street financial markets and the federal government itself? What's your temperature gauge there in terms of just the everyday person's trust in these institutions that are you know, supposedly running the show. Less confident for sure. I think there's been so much change. So I'm a CPA as well. I don't practice anymore. But just the taxes in and of itself in the last five years is crazy. Like, you know, the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act, that's going to be expiring in just a few years. And you have that change. You have an election coming up in 2024. So you've got that landscape. And then with just the investing landscape, there's more coming out all the time, which is great, but it's also super overwhelming. I don't know anybody who's joined Netflix and then been, oh my gosh, this is amazing and super overwhelming. I don't know what to look at first. Right. And so I think because of that, when you are faced with this barrage of information, I don't see how you can become more confident in it. And then if things are happening that maybe make you feel a little ick. Like, I don't really understand why that happened politically. Then I think the con- your confidence may begin to wane even more. So, and because of that lack of confidence, you know, I do have clients who will just ask me, can I just ask you some questions about money? I'm just trying to understand, which I always say, absolutely. You know, there are no dumb questions. Don't, and don't, please don't say you were bad with math because, you know, we we all feel bad about something. But I think it's just right now, just with there's so many, there's so much going on. There's so much changing. And if you don't know the information, I don't see how we could become more confident unless we take the time to actually understand something and also to understand it from a viable resource. You know, I think one of the things that I've seen a lot lately, especially in the financial advisory landscape, is the fact that people are getting their information from say like TikTok videos and the people behind the TikTok videos may not necessarily be the people who should be giving out the advice. Right. No. Yeah. I mean, I think I've, you, you see numbers thrown around, but it seems like increasingly large percentages of people under the age of 30 are getting their financial information and, and news from, you know, Instagram and TikTok, yeah. which I don't think it's necessarily a bad thing, but the barrier to entry for those spokespeople is really low and there's no way to fact check it. And yeah, it's can be overwhelming. I'm not sure that's the right medium either. Just considering like the pace of that information distribution is so high. It can be in and of itself, like a very anxious experience. I know for me, as we kind of round out the conversation, I do want to talk about the work that you do with women in transition, because I think that's really interesting. You know, of financial services has not been oriented towards women, period. Yeah. And that's starting to change. It's still male dominated, both on the kind of executive 
leadership side as well as target audience. But it, it seems like this inheritor generation of millennials, which I'm a member, the majority of them will be women. Women will control, you know, the, the majority of wealth moving forward. Mm-hmm. And so have you seen that narrative change? And what are you doing in that space? Yeah, I try to, well, first of all, I try to encourage the narrative because even when I'm meeting with, say, a couple, if there is, if, say, the traditionally, if the husband's reaching out to me, then I always try to make sure that the wife is speaking up, right? But then also vice versa. If it's right now, one of the couples I'm working with, the wife reached out to me and the husband just really doesn't want to even talk about money. That's also just super anxious, is it, you know, but... With, you know, when women are, it's such an emotional thing. First of all, money in and of itself, and then possibly the way that women receive the money. So whether it's through inheritance or whether it's through divorce, there can be just some really, it's, I call it kind of like the tsunami, like it's just a tsunami that's in front of them. They can't see anything beyond it. So there's really no point in me trying to say, hey, let's talk about our emotions and money because they can't even talk about anything else rather than what's going on in front of them. So it's just kind of being their partner and listening and hearing them and reflecting back to them what I've heard. Because sometimes, just like you said earlier, Brian, sometimes it's just putting that out and laying that out to someone else and then saying, okay, now, and then having you know a trusted partner come back and say, okay, this is what I heard you say. Of those things, what do you feel takes priority right now, you know, soon and then later? Because then that helps us put things into maybe buckets per se. I think men, it's much easier for them to compartmentalize. Women, it's all right there. And so then when an event happens like that, as emotionally taxing as that can be, that it's like, I can't do anything. It's analysis paralysis. There's nothing I can do right now. So it's really just kind of trying to walk along beside them, be their listening partner and just, you know, be there to say, okay, this is what, you know, being that reflection, being that mirror to say, this is what I hear you say. Is that accurate? And what do you feel takes priority? And that can sometimes just take some time too, because, you know, as they say, time helps, time heals all wounds. So it's, it can, that can be a, just a, a process in and of itself. Yeah. You've got a great section on the website about kind of how it works and you broke it down into these 10 sessions. I won't go into the sessions kind of line by line, but I think it is interesting. What do you see as the typical like narrative arc when you first engage with a woman who's in that position, either divorce or widow or a major professional transition? What are like the typical phases of the cycle that you work through, you know, on a usual fact pattern? Yeah. Typically, it's they just want to talk about, they just need to, they just need to share. They just need to say everything, whether it's, you know, emotionally vomiting or whatever you want to call it. They just need to get it off of their chest and just talk about what's bothering them right now. It can go anywhere from, Repairs that I need to make in this house right now, but I can't make it because I don't know if I have the money because my husband was always the one who took care of everything. And I'm, you know, I'm not, so I'm not quite sure to, I'm not sure how my child is dealing with what's going on. And do you have any resources? Can you help me with that? 
to, you know, just again, being that listening partner. So for me, it's really seen there's usually some actual semantics, like let's take care of some logistical problems that are happening that might have to deal with your finances and kind of take care of that, nip those in the bud first, because that's going to make you feel like you can, first of all, breathe. Just going to your day-to-day expenses and making sure you can handle it. A lot of women have this fear that they don't want to become bag ladies. They're going to end up on the street. So what can we do just on a day-to-day visceral that we can fix, that we can take care of right now from the information that we have? Okay, next. Now let's say, is there something else that is bothering you that, you know, that you still need to go ahead and grapple with? And maybe something that's happening down the road, like six months down the road, but it's been, you know, in your brain or that sometimes then they're like, once they take care of that first initial piece where they're just like, I just don't know, understand these pieces. I need to figure out where my money's coming from. And do I have enough? Then it's like, okay, now I'm ready to kind of talk about more about how I'm feeling about money and, and how this is affecting me. Yeah. I'm familiar with the catastrophic thinking it's not very helpful, yeah. but it's a place that I go to pretty easily, like the downward spiral. My wife calls it the parade of horrors. Like yeah, that's a good there. one. I mean, I usually use like the river of misery, yeah. but it's something where, so interestingly enough, you can deal with that with the horrors. You can also deal with it when people try to understand something with finances. What I found is once they understand something or they've learned about something, whether it's a health savings account, HSA, or a high yield savings account, HYSA. Then all of a sudden they want to learn everything all at once right now. And so similarly, it's like we take on this burden of doing everything all right now, whether it's cataclysmic or not. And then we go into that analysis paralysis again with a guy can't do anything. And then we just don't do anything. And so it's like this vicious cycle of, well, it's going to be all or nothing. So one one of the, I'm a big fan of giving out resources and books and podcast episodes. And so I like to talk about the book, Tiny Habits by BJ Fogg, because a lot of people will talk about Atomic Habits by James Clear. But what BJ Fogg talks about is you have a tiny habit and you anchor that to something that you're already doing, but you keep that tiny habit every day, the same tiny habit. If you have the natural space and desire to expand on it that day, great. But if you don't, that's okay. Because I feel like us in society, we are so all or nothing. And then if we're nothing, then we're like, well, we're done. That's it. I can't do anymore. And it's like, but just do a little bit each and every day. And if you've done that little tiny habit, BJ also will talk about, you know, and then you celebrate. You celebrate that you did it. Maybe you're just like, yes, I did it. And I think that just speaks to us just as a society. Why can't we just celebrate? I'm always big on celebrating. Just even if you say it's a little win, you still celebrate it. You know, so I think it's, you can go into this, you know, the catastrophic horror, or you could go into like, but it, or I got to know everything. But it's just like taking these little steps one at a time keeping those, keeping a tiny habit and then saying, I can learn a little bit. So that way you don't feel like you're in the Netflix of financial literacy. I've got to know everything all at once. I like that analogy. Well, Maggie, I want to thank you so much for joining us. This is great. Really helpful. And keep up the good work. I know it's really needed and access to resources like yours are not 
always uh, readily available. So thanks for everything you're doing. <laughs> and please, our listeners, leave us a review and a comment. Let us know your favorite part of the conversation. Maggie, a question we ask people to come on the show. Do you have a daily practice that helps bring peace to your life? I do. I love to journal. It, usually I try to do it uh, first thing in the morning. But sometimes if it's been a day, it might happen, you know, right before I go to bed and I get those thoughts out. Love it. And if people are interested in connecting with you, working with you, learning more about the services you provide, what's the best way for them to engage? Yeah, the best way for them to engage is to go to my website, makeamoneymindshift.com and click on one of those connect with me buttons. Awesome. Maggie, thank you so much for joining us. And I look forward to staying in touch. Awesome. Thanks so much, Brian. Thank you for joining us for today's conversation on the Capital Club podcast. If you enjoyed what you heard, be sure to like, rate, and leave us a review. And please follow us on your favorite streaming platform so you never miss an episode. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.